scriptures to our minds and hearts. Holy Spirit, will you please take it off the page, so to speak, and implant it into our hearts, our minds, our souls, so we might be impacted by it. These small words of scripture that they would have a huge transformational impact on us, which is what the gospel does. It changes us from the inside out. So help us to have ears ready to hear what the Spirit has to say. Help me in communicating uh, as well as I can so that it might be clear, convicting, encouraging, comforting, all of those things. Uh, the power of the Word of God. So we ask all of this for the glory of our Savior. Amen. Grab your Bibles. Open to Philippians chapter 4. So we've been in this short letter written a long, long ago by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison in Rome to a church that he had planted many years before. And he is writing to them with the, the basic push of the gospel, I mean of the letter, is the expansion of the gospel, the importance of the gospel going out. There are many themes that runs through, run through the letter from the importance of fellowship, having a partnership, you know, the church being connected, standing firm uh, against the attacks of the enemy. Um, it, it talks a lot about how we're to treat one another, consider others as more important than ourselves. Uh, it has a theme of joy or rejoicing that runs through it. Prayer runs through it. I mean, many different themes run through it. It's all been encouraging to me as we've gone through this letter together, and we're now at uh, about ready to kind of wheels down on the on the runway uh, today as we come to the last section here that we started last week, and we'll finish today. So we're in uh, Philippians 4, verse 10 through 20. And uh, let me read that, and then we'll continue going through it together. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, you yourselves, uh, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So in this final section where Paul's giving some final words of encouragement following his final exhortations in, uh, exhortations in verses 1 through 9 of this last chapter, 
we, we see that he's really speaking about grat- his gratitude for them as a, as a church and their faithfulness in supporting him. We read about his contentment in wherever uh, and in whatever situation God has him in. And we see the generosity of the church. So those are kind of the three main words that describe what's going on in these verses as he's encouraging them. Gratitude, contentment, and generosity. But we're approaching these verses, or I am, and taking you on this with me. We're approaching it from the aspect of contentment. That's really kind of where Paul's at. Much of what he has to say in these verses is centered around that very fact, that he is content in the situation where God has him, and he's content with what God has provided for him. And so we're looking at four different things. We covered two of them last week that Paul communicates about what contented people are like, not just himself. These things run true for us. Application for us is the same as it would have been for Paul. So we saw that contented people rejoice in God's faithful provision, right? They rejoice in his faithful provision. That was verse 10. Or he said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You may say that, well, I don't see it in there. I don't see that, you know, he's God's faithful provision. I mean, it's the, the, the Philippians that provided for him, and he's focusing on them. Well, the truth is, He's focusing on what the Lord has done through them in providing for him. That's why he says, I rejoiced in the Lord, because he knew it was the Lord in his faithfulness using the Philippians to provide for his welfare while he was in prison. Contented people, they do rejoice in God's faithful provision. I, I, I was thinking about it yesterday as my wife and I were giving thanks for the food that we were going to eat uh, in the evening, uh, even giving thanks for McDonald's. Uh, and and uh, as, I, as I was thanking God for that, I, I was very much focused on, I am grateful for God's faithful provision for us. The, for uh, my wife and I, We've practiced this our entire marriage where we give thanks before a meal. I mean, we'll do that if we're out at a restaurant. I stand up and I say, can I have everyone's attention? No, I don't. I don't don't do that. I don't think that's wise to do. But we do it if we're at a restaurant or in someone's home. Um, You know, we may say, would you mind if we give thanks for this? Now, for us, it's not a matter of a ritual that we have to follow in order to be right with God. It is a reminder to us that we are dependent upon God for everything and that God is faithful in providing for us. And we we don't want to miss the opportunity to, to, to say to God, God, we're thankful for how well you take care of us. Not just the food that we eat, but the clothes that we wear that was mentioned earlier, the homes that we live in. I'm particularly thankful that I have a warm home. Uh, when the weather is as cold as it is. I'm kind of missing my garage right now. can't uh, work the garage door because the spring is broke. But, uh, you know, I'm thankful that I have a car that I can turn on and warm up and drive over here without, you know, going like that. I'm thankful for that. That's God's provision. I'm, I'm thankful for everything 
that God gives. And he gives it, and oftentimes I don't even recognize that he's giving it. I want to be more aware of that, how he provides. So a contented person rejoices in God's faithful provision. Then secondly, we saw a contented person is satisfied with a little or a lot. And that, that's verses 11 and 12, where Paul says again, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Uh, for and, and, and what he means there is not that I am like, if I don't get this gift from you, I'm going to die because I'm missing, I'm missing the bare essentials to sustain my life. He says, I'm not writing or speaking of that kind of situation. He says, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he, he's, he's satisfied with a little or a lot. And no doubt he had experienced both in life, a little and a lot. Now he's experiencing little, right? There's not an abundance with him being in prison. He, he, he's had many times where he exp- experienced hunger uh, and, and other times where there was feasting. He's learned to be content satisfied whether there was a little or a lot. And that's what every believer who knows the Lord should be uh, satisfied with. Because, again, they recognize it is God who faithfully provides. And sometimes God provides a little. And maybe he does that to make us realize he's faithful. You know, and, and, and he's providing just enough. And it reminds us. He gives me my daily bread. Like we're supposed to pray, Jesus said. Give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't say give us this day our yearly annual income to buy food. No, so it's like a day by day. I trust God to provide. And sometimes that's a little, you know, it might be a piece of bread. And other times it's a, you know, a, a nicely done ribeye steak on the grill and some mashed potatoes and and some wonderful vegetables, a little or a lot. question is, are we content with a little or a lot? You know, in America, truth is we, we don't have a whole lot of a little. I mean, people that are poor in the poor category uh, in, in our culture in the West and in the United States live rich compared to many places in the world. But there are many people that aren't content with what they have. <laughs> I think you see it everywhere you go, right? You hear it all the time. I want, I want, I want. I, I want more, I want different, I want better, I want, I want, I want. And, and oftentimes people are associating their wants with their needs. You know, things that they feel like are essential. Well, the truth is, I, you know, I like my, my phone, I do. I like it. It's helpful for me. I use it every day. But I could live without it. <laughs> it's not an absolute essential to sustain my life. Some elements about it, you know, make it, like, life more complicated. Are you satisfied with a little or a lot? Contented people are, again, because they realize God is the one who supplies everything for them. Well, that brings us where we're picking it up. 
for the third thing about contented people, and that's verse 13. And what we see there is that a contented person is strengthened by divine power. A contented person is strengthened by divine power. Verse 13, again, reads, very well-known verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So in well-known words that kind of climax his statement about he learned the, you know, the secret of contentment, Paul affirms here with assurance and humility that he's able to be content in all things because of his reliance on God who gives him strength. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And, and you could say that is God the Father, or you could say that is the Lord Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Any of them work because they're one, right? It's Christ who's in me. He strengthens me. The Holy Spirit indwells me. He strengthens me. The Father is sovereign, and he's providing everything. He strengthens me. God strengthens me. Now, this statement by Paul is often quoted without regard to the context in which it is written. And it's understood at popular levels to mean, you know, that when empowered by Christ, the, the, the Christian can do absolutely anything. You know, it might be something like this. So the Christian interviewing for a new job, he's nervous about it or she's nervous about it, but, you know, speaks to self and says, I can do this through Christ who strengthens me. I can get through this. I know I can. Or maybe it's the young man who is fearful about asking his, you know, his girl on a date, or maybe even more scary, asking for her hand in marriage. I can do this through Christ who strengthens me. The, the young athlete facing a, a challenge in training or in the midst of competition. I can do this. I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. The team who's on the field, you know, and the quarterback gets in on us. We can do this. We can do this. Christ is on our side. We can do it. He'll strengthen us. Of course, the other team might be saying the same thing. <laughs> How about uh, the, the young, the, the young uh, man or woman, young boy or girl who's going to test for their driver's license. They're nervous about it. They've studied for it, but I can do this. I can do this through Christ who, who strengthens me. The Christian climbing a, a mountain, you know, or up a, ice, a sheet of ice on the side of a, of a hill. Crazy, crazy people. But anyway, the Christian, you know, climbing says, I can do this. I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. I can do this through Christ. The believer facing significant physical health challenges. I've had a number of those. Many of you have. Many in our body are. They might want to say, I can do this through him who strengthens me. Right? This is kind of the popular message. And, and you could probably add many other types of examples like that. But is that what Paul's actually talking about? And now, while it is true that Christ is involved with us as we face all of life's challenges, that's not what Paul is talking about. It's not what he's saying in this verse. The all things, I can do all things, right? 
it's not completely unqualified. And you've got to see it in its context. I mean, it must be understood in connection with what he says in the previous verses, particularly verses 11 and 12. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. I've learned to be content, you know, in whatever situation. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So there, right within verse 12, he says, any and every circumstance. And so that's what he's talking about. I've learned to be content in any and every circumstance. And so the context demands that the all things is being restricted to being brought low or being high, not knowing, you know, knowing how to abound or facing plenty or hunger, being in abundance or need. That's the any and all circumstance that he's talking about. And that's what he means when he says, I can do all things in any of those kinds of circumstances that might create worry or fear, or am I going to survive? Do I have enough to live, uh, etc.? I can I can face those through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying he's he's able to remain content in each and every circumstance because of his dependence upon the Lord who is faithfully providing. He's able to rejoice in the Lord because he's faithfully providing for him. And so he's able to be content because he's totally dependent upon the Lord. He remains content in living in the midst of strikingly different and oftentimes difficult circumstances. Now what is amazing to me is that you will hardly ever hear anyone use this verse in that context. They use it in all those other contexts that I was, you know, mentioning. But hardly will you hear people say, you know, I'm content. Even though I don't really like my job, you know, it doesn't pay as much as I'd like it to. Or, you know, I'm, I'm content even though my, my vehicle is getting old and it's starting to cost me a lot of money. Uh, I'm content. I'm content. I'm content in whatever circumstance God has Uh, me to face. I'm content. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm going to trust in him, his provision for me. I'm content. When Paul considered his circumstances, you know, where is he? He's in chains, in weakness, and in humiliation, if you will, as a Roman uh, prisoner. He, He looked to Christ. He looked to Christ, and he saw the one who gives strength to become like him. That's really what Paul is implying here. His contentment is based on that God is doing in and through him and around him whatever is necessary for him to be more like Christ. His contentment in any and every circumstance. Now, hear this, please. His contentment in any and every circumstance was not a passive acceptance. What I mean by that is it wasn't a, well, whatever will be, will be. K say ra, say ra. You know, Lion King, little animals singing, you know. It, it, it wasn't passive acceptance. 
It was an act of belief in and a pursuit of his goal to know Christ more fully, chapter 3, and preach Christ more faithfully wherever God had him. That was his contentment. That was his contentment. His satisfaction and contentment in life was not found in the help of others. The Philippians' gifts, that was nice, but his contentment wasn't based on that. Whether they had sent a gift or not, he would be content because his help didn't come from others. And, and, and his contentment wasn't found in his own self-sufficiency. Rather, it was entirely due to the sufficiency of another. And this is what he means when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this is true for all believers because everyone who is a believer, everyone who is in vital union with Christ by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, and thus the Lord Jesus indwelling them, according to Paul in his epistle to the Ephesians. They should be able to be content. Because it's really a matter of not how much I have or what I lack, but who I'm becoming in him. Each believer is united with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection finds in him, in Christ, the source of God's power that enables him to be joyful and content and at peace in all kinds of circumstances. You know, and, and, and what they find is they, as they trust in God's faithful provision, they find the peace of God that we saw earlier in chapter 4. They find the peace of God guarding their hearts and minds because they know they're in Christ and God is in control. So this is a very powerful statement. I can do all things through him and strengthens me. Not about our ability to do anything, but our need to trust God to do whatever is necessary to sustain us. Do you trust God that way? That's really the question. And the truth is, the more conscious we are of our own weaknesses and our our inadequacies, our inabilities, we become most aware of Christ's power resting upon us. For when we are weak, then we are strong. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Right there, you can read it as I read it. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content. There's that word. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. When I am weak, then I am strong. So, I think it should be easy for us to see how when a person takes this verse out of context, as so often is done, 
you know, and a person is believing that they can do absolutely anything because Christ will strengthen them to do it, and then they're not successful. The girl turned them down. They didn't get the job. They didn't get the pay raise. They failed their driver's test. They didn't make it up the mountain. Whatever it is, you know, they they fail. They're not successful. They may end up thinking this. I just don't have enough faith. I, I, I must not have enough faith in Christ because I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. And if I d- didn't do it, then it can't be him. It must be me. Right? And then you end up feeling guilty. Or, you know, it may be that people end up concluding that Christ actually isn't fulfilling his promise to us. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. I don't do it. I end up not doing it. And I know I was giving it my all, so it must be God, Christ. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's not really paying attention. You know, that was the cry of Israel in the Old Testament. You know, when they were being overwhelmed by enemies, that you read about it in Isaiah in particular, uh, in chapter 40, they're like, where are you, God? Where are you? You're not fulfilling what you promised you would do for us. And they were concluding that God either didn't see or he didn't care. And that's what people can conclude. If they take this verse out of its context, misapply it, and then they're not able to do what they think Christ has promised to do for them. So very seldom do people take this verse for what it is really saying, that through Christ they can face life in varying and different different and difficult circumstances and be joyful and content with whatever God has for them because God faithfully provides everything that they need for life and godliness. Contentment. And that's where Paul was at. And he was that while he was in prison, chained 24-7 to a Roman soldier, hindered from going about freely preaching the gospel as he had done for years. And yet, and yet, he knew that through God taking him in these circumstances and being in in, you know, in low situations and not abounding and being hungry perhaps at times and so on, that God was using him to take the gospel where he couldn't have taken it otherwise. And you see it in the book in chapter 1. He, he says that it's gone into the Praetorian Guard, Caesar's special soldiers meant to protect him. The gospel had infiltrated their group. And then you get to the very second to the last verse in this epistle, he gives an understanding that went beyond that too. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The gospel had gone into Caesar's household because he was in the situation that he was in. No wonder he could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can even get the gospel out to soldiers who then take it to soldiers who then take it to Caesar's household. And it's not me doing it, it's God's doing it all along. Powerful, powerful. Lastly, a contented person is preoccupied with the well-being of others. That's really verses 14, 14 through 
19. A contented person is preoccupied with the well-being of others. Amen. Amen. You know, those who live for themselves, <laughs> you know, are self-absorbed and self-centered, they will never be content because contentment for them can only come uh, John MacArthur writes it this way. It will only come when all their circumstances are exactly as they want them to be. And of course, that's never going to happen because the self-absorbed person will never be satisfied with where they're at. And they're going to want more and more and more and better and better and better circumstances. So Paul, he transitions really in verse 14. Uh, and that's what that little word that starts off verse 14, yet... Yet, it's a transition word. And what he's, what he's written in 10 through 13 about his contentment not being based upon the financial support that uh, the church had sent to him through Epaphroditus, well, you know, he, he, he could easily have been misunderstood in what he was saying uh, uh, by the Philippians. After they had sacrificed, and we saw that last week in Second Corinthians, they were very poor people, and they gave out of the abundance of their poverty, uh, you know, to minister to Paul as well as to needy saints in the, uh, among the Judean churches because of a famine that had hit that part of the land. But after they had sacrificed so much to meet his needs and others' needs, uh, and to participate in the ministry of the gospel, and then receiving this letter from Paul where he says, well, I don't really speak uh, out of need because I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in, whether I have a little or a lot. Well, they could have concluded that he neither needed nor even appreciated their gift. This is a, I, I, I like the gift, but you know, I rejoice in God for it, but you know, I, I don't speak out of need. And they could have misunderstood that. And I told you last week about this whole thing with thanks. And it was kind of in that culture. If you said thanks or um, you sent something, it, it was a position of power and obligation that went on. And that's why Paul doesn't thank them, but he thanks God. He doesn't rejoice in them, he rejoices in God. But anyway, they could have misunderstood what he was saying. It's like, well, he doesn't really even care about the gift that we sent him. I don't think we'll send him another gift. And to make certain that they didn't misunderstand uh, what he was saying to them, um, he, he, you know, he wants to make sure they didn't misunderstand that he has an attitude of in, ingratitude. So he follows up his comments of being content, and, and that didn't change whether he had a little or a lot, and, but he adds to it a second expression of appreciation for the church and their generosity, both in the present and in the past. And that's what we read in 14 through 16. And it's interesting. He starts out in verse 14, he says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And unlike the believers around him in Rome who had stirred up trouble, they, in fact, had done a good deed in sharing in his trouble. So back in chapter 1, in verse 17, and let me start in verse 15. Some indeed preach, Paul's in prison, and he's talking about the gospel advancing, and others preaching the gospel. 
being more confident to preach the gospel, verse 14. 15, he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Long ago when we covered that verse, but basically he's saying, some people are only preaching the gospel because they want to poke me. They want to afflict me. And the word afflict in 117 is the same word for trouble in verse 14 of chapter 4. And so those, you know, who were around him in Rome were inflicting trouble on him. And those from uh, Philippi had shared financially with them. But in doing so, they were sharing in his trouble. Now, they had done so through a practical display of love and friendship, right? I mean, that's what their gift was. Paul had showed kindness to them. He had done a good deed in bringing them the gospel and teaching them beyond just the simple gospel. He had taught them many things. And they have shown kindness in supporting him financially. Now, two important things stand out in, in two terms really stand out in that verse. First is the word shared. They shared with him. Now, how many of you have heard the, the, the Greek word koinonia? Yeah? If you've been around here, you've actually heard it. You're just forgetting it, and that's okay. The koinonia, is a, it's a, actually often used in churches. It's a word that means fellowship or to have a share, partnership, etc., Several times in this letter, he's talking about partnership, participation, fellowship. And in fact, one of the translations is going to use that word uh, fellowship in these verses as he talks about their partnership with Paul in the gospel. But this verb that he uses here is an intensive form of that word, but it's, it's connected to the string of words in the letter pointing out their partnership uh, uh, you know, between the Philippians and Paul in advancing the gospel. So again, in chapter 1 and verse 5 and 7, verse 5 he says, because of your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers, partners uh, with me of grace. And then here, he, in verse 15, he's in chapter 4, he's going to use that word again. And you Philippians, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into fellowship, partnership, with me in giving and re- receiving except you only. So it's talking about their partnership in advancing the gospel. It's also found in connection with the common life that they share by means of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2 and verse 1, the word is found. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any fellowship or participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, he says. So it's used in relation to 
their shared life in the Holy, by means of the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And then also in sharing in the sufferings of Christ. In chapter 3, Paul had talked about his sharing in the sufferings of Christ in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share fellowship, have a part uh, in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And in and, uh, and, and then in chapter 1 and verse 29, he had told the believers, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So this is significant. This is one of those words, one of those minor themes that runs through the book. They are partners. Listen, that is how we are to view our life together. We're partners in the gospel. We're partners in the life of God. We're partners because the Holy Spirit has made us such in Christ. We're partners with one another and with Christ. Second, Paul identified their partnership specifically as sharing in his trouble. The, the, the Greek word that is used there can uh, refer to hardship of any kind. You know, for Paul, his troubles, his afflictions, uh, included both his external circumstances at the time. He's in Rome. He's chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. Uh, he, he may be under house arrest in this imprisonment. Later, he would be imprisoned again and put in the maritime dungeon but it is still a hardship where he's at. External circumstances were unpleasant. He's a, he's a Roman prisoner. He's in chains. But more than that, he had the internal stress of being harmed, even by those who claimed to be believers, those that were preaching, attempting to add to his afflictions. Or by the fact that uh, you know he was so concerned about the false teachers and the impact that would have on the church... And he just says in 2 Corinthians 11 that they had the daily concern for all the churches. As he's in his Roman imprisonment, he's thinking about the church in Philippi, and he's thinking about the church in Thessalonica, and the church in Ephesus, and the church in Corinth. And it's a daily concern for these places. He's got those internal struggles. In Second uh, Corinthians 7, he will talk about hardships outside and hardships inside, internal and external to him. He had these troubles, these afflictions. But more than that, this term for Paul had a deeper significance. And that's found in Colossians 1.24, where he spoke of suffering and filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. Say that again. He spoke of, I do my part in filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. And the same Greek word is used there. So that his difficulties in spreading the gospel and being in prison because of his spreading of the gospel actually connected him to Christ. Now, what he doesn't mean in that verse is that Christ didn't suffer enough to produce our salvation. You know, 
uh, what was Christ was lacking in his affliction is not a reference that Christ didn't suffer enough to, to purchase our salvation. He did. What he means is if Christ were still here, the, the affliction would go toward him. But since I'm a representative of him, the affliction comes toward me. I'm connected to Christ because I preach Christ. I proclaim Christ. And that is true of all those who are faithfully proclaiming Christ. They will receive, as Jesus promised they would, persecution on account of his name, affliction because they are faithful to him. So in reflecting on his troubles, Paul realized the significance of his suffering as it related to gospel ministry and that those who participated with him, even in giving a financial gift to help support him, they too were joining, sharing, participating in his afflictions in in that sense, in the afflictions of Christ. So, you know, the gifts evidenced their willingness to identify with Jesus in the same way that Paul did. And, and yet Paul, his focus is more on them than it is on the gift. Are you getting that? It's more about them than it is the money he received from them. The money was helpful, yes, but the relationship and the partnership that he felt with this church was most important. And that's why he goes on to say in verses 15 and 16, you know, uh, that it, well, he reviews their faithfulness in supporting him. Just read that. And, and you Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership, fellowship, sharing with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help. For my needs once and again, so more than once. Well, he, you know, when he left, uh, and by the way, when it says the beginning of the gospel, he doesn't mean the beginning of gospel in Jerusalem. He means the beginning of the gospel for the Philippians. He had brought them the gospel, Acts 16. The beginning was there for them. And when he left uh, Philippi and he went to other places like Thessalonica, the believers in Macedonia or Philippi wanted to be part of what he was doing. And so they financially supported him, even in Thessalonica, which was just down, down the, the water uh, way, uh, a ways. And, and he wasn't even there for very long. It actually says in Acts 16 that he was there for like three weeks, a successive week sharing the gospel in the synagogue, and then he was driven out of town. And, and so it, within a, a period of a few weeks, they actually sent two, at least two, financial gifts to him because they felt that they were partners with him in sharing the gospel. So I, this is actually kind of beautiful as I was thinking about it. By referring to his memory of what they had done, right? He refers to, in his memory, I remember what you did. Not just this last gift through Epaphroditus, but also the ones previous to that. You know, at the start of the gospel with you and, and then following that, by referring to his memory of what they themselves already know, he stresses how much he valued their support, but more than that, their relationship. What you yourselves know, uh, it's kind of he's saying this, what you yourselves know, I do not and I will not ever forget. What you've done for me, I'll never forget it. What you did so well, so 
kindly. Such goodness I will always treasure in my heart and mind. That's a beautiful statement by the apostle. And so you, you, you hear his heart. He's not prodding them for more support, is he? He's saying, whether you support me or not, I love you guys. And we're partners in, in the work of God. In part, their faithfulness in supporting his ministry, along with Paul's own practice of working the trade of tent making, allowed him to minister to newly formed churches without putting any obligation on the newly formed church to support him financially. Listen, uh, this is from two verses to his letters to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 2.9, he writes, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And 2 Thessalonians 3.8, he says, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But we toil and labor. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul's practice as an apostle was to go to a city, preach the gospel, and while he was in that city preaching the gospel, starting a church, he wouldn't take any money from those people in that city. Now, if other churches, like the Philippian church, wanted to support him after he had already been there and the church had been formed, they were welcome to do that. And he accepted that, and he rejoiced in the Lord for God's faithfulness and providing for him through them. But he purposely would not go to his... He didn't want anyone to think in any place where he preached the gospel that, the, that, that salvation could be purchased by giving money to him as the preacher. The gospel was freely given, and Paul freely preached it. But still... Still, it seems Paul's not satisfied that he's sufficiently put at bay any misunderstanding about his attitude concerning the gift that they had sent through Epaphroditus. I mean, he could rejoice and be content whether they sent a gift or not. Um, He would be content in whatever circumstances he found himself in. But he wants them to understand that he's speaking to them out of thanksgiving to God for his sovereign provision and that he was selfless in this. That's why he says, in selflessness, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Do you hear it? Contented people are preoccupied with the well-being of others. (laughs) Now, I know that there have been many a preacher that have shared this verse. You know, and I'm not asking, you know, it's not for my benefit or benefit of the church that I'm, you know prodding you and haranguing you to give money, more money, we need more money. I'm not doing it for me or, you know, for the church, but it's for your benefit. A lot of people have heard stuff like that from many a preacher. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's speaking genuinely, not that I seek the gift from you. If you don't want to send a gift, I'm okay with that. What I seek is your well-being, your spiritual benefit. The gift that the Philippians brought Paul, you know, uh, it gave him joy, not because of a personal benefit, but because of its spiritual benefit to them. That's what he's saying. 
I, I think his words are a security against any false image of him, kind of as an as a anxious accountant hovering over his you know, spreadsheets, figuring out how to raise more and more money and to support the ministry and that kind of thing. I mean, he insists that his motive is not self-centered, but focused on them, their well-being. Now, one thing that has remained true from Paul's day to our own is the presence of unscrupulous men who pretend to be religious preachers and teachers that are after the money of of those who fall under their promises of wealth that will come to those who will only give uh, financially to support their ministry. I did a little Google search again this week about the world's uh, richest preachers. Oh man, it's it's so sad. It is so sad. I mean, and we're talking personal wealth through preaching the gospel. Hundred and fifty million. Fifty million, forty million, thirty million, twenty-five million. On the list goes more than twenty, more than thirty. It just goes on and on and on. You know, and it happens through language like this. I mean, if you, if you will sow a seed, God will multiply it by a hundredfold. So if you, if you give $100 today, just think what God will give you tomorrow. He'll multiply it a hundredfold. So, you know, sow your seed. God wants to give you wealth. And God wants to give you health. Because, you know, you're his royal children He wants you to have all of that. But you must first show that you believe in him. And the way to do that is to to give to him by supporting me. By supporting this ministry. I mean, the message may vary, but the intent is always the same. To fill the pocketbook of the preacher or the teacher. But Paul was not a greedy preacher. Not... Not one who put his own welfare uh, above others. Rather, he was a genuine, genuine, genuine minister of God who truly thought of the benefit that would come to the Philippians because of their generosity. It's the last part of this whole three-word thing. Uh, Again, gratitude and contentment and generosity. And although when he, uh, the exact nature of the fruit that you know, is going to increase to their account isn't defined in his statement, Paul uh, assures them that God will supply all their needs in verse 19. So again, look at it. Not that I seek the gift, verse 17, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having re- received from Paphrodite the gifts you sent. A fragrant aroma, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus and glory. So, what is Paul talking about when he talks about fruit? To their, you know, will increase to their account. Well, in the context of a letter, the, the term fruit primarily refers to the blessing of a rich development of Christian or Christ-like character. So the idea is that every act of love, uh, every act of love gives a believer more capacity to love. 
every act of Christian ministry develops and enriches the believer as they do so. So what Paul is actually saying, the, the fruit increasing to the Philippians account in this verse is an answer to what he prayed for them in chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11. Let me read that to you again. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So the fruit increasing to their account is what he had prayed for them earlier. And ultimately, the fruit that increases to the count of any Christian is knowing Christ more and more until the day that they enter into his presence and they become just like him. So Paul's not teaching a health and wealth gospel. Oftentimes, verse 19 is used in that way. If you will just give, God will supply, and, and it's implied, all you want. If you faithfully give, God will supply all you want according to his riches and glory. And the focus is on money, material possessions. And I don't think that's what he's really focusing on here. He's not a health and wealth gospel kind of guy. He's he's not assuring the readers that they will experience great material prosperity as a result of giving to the Lord's work. But he is expressing his genuine desire that they would experience the full benefits of knowing the Lord more and more until he returns and that they would have joy and peace and contentment in seeing God's faithful provision for his people in the here and now. Did you get that? Become more and more like Christ. Well, what did you see in Christ? Joy, peace, contentment. What's the fruit that's going to increase to you as you know Christ more and more? Joy and peace and contentment. The very things that he's been covering in chapter 4. And it's rather beautiful in verse 18 where Paul transformed the meaning of the gifts sent by the Philippians to help Paul, referring to them in terms of sacrificial offerings given to God. A fragrant offering, a, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So, at, you know, at a social level, their gifts demonstrated the friendship that they had with Paul. But at a theological level, level their gifts demonstrated their faith in God. They worshipped God. The social act of friendship transformed into a religious act of worship. Is that how we think about our offering? We should, Right? It's not like, well, I've got to give, you know, I've got to support the work. It's the only way that things will, we've got to pay for the building. And then it's like, that's, that's true. That is true. Our giving helps to cover things like that. But I ought to be thinking about when I give, I want it to be a fragrant aroma to the Lord. A gift well-pleasing to him. An act of worship to him. This is kind of the same idea expressed in a few other verses, like Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
It's not giving money, it's giving ourselves, but it's the same act of worship. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There's the sharing of finances. 1 Peter 2, 5 You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable or well-pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. So Paul knew. Paul knew that Philippians would not only receive spiritual blessings in heaven for their generosity, but that God would amply supply every need that they had in this life as well. It's just how you define the need, right? How you define the need. So the believer can be confident that, you know, if they give from their earthly possession to support the work of God, God will in turn amply supply. And the word amply is not there, but it is in the Greek word. It's amply supply. It's uh, overflowing supply for every need. God is never a debtor to any person who is first given to him that God is required to give back to him, Romans 11.33 says. And so people argue. People argue over what needs Paul is referring to when he says this. Does it cover material needs or is it just spiritual needs that he's referring to? I think the context seems to imply that at least some material needs are being referred to. And yet if Paul's own understanding of need is meant... You know, he had said up above, not that I speak of need, right? I don't speak out of need. And if that's what he's referring to here, then surely he's including the idea that God will supply the needs of Philippians with the ability to face all and any circumstances while being content because God is faithfully providing for them and that he will give them strength to face all of that. I know. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. <laughs> but I, I, I just have to share one more little bit with you. This, this statement, that God will supply, amply supply um, all your needs, is modified or explained by the rest of the verse, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Three prepositional phrases. Yes, that's language. Main ideas and other ideas that help explain it. First of those is according to his riches. Now, I just, I've got to read you that something that came out of a commentary. I just couldn't say it any better to help us understand these riches. Paul measured his own net worth in terms of the riches of God. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing and yet possessing everything, 2 Corinthians 6.10. He describes the mission of Christ in terms of transference of God's riches. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his riches or his poverty might become rich, 2 Corinthians 8.9. Paul specifies the nature of the riches of God as the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, Romans 2, 4, and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, Romans eleven thirty three. 
The other prison epistles, Colossians and Ephesians, feature the riches of God in Christ Jesus as the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ, Colossians 1.27, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.2. The riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. The riches of his glorious inheritance, Ephesians 1, 18. The boundless riches of Christ, Ephesians 3, 8. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, Ephesians three sixteen. So all of these references to the boundless, glorious riches of God provide the basis for understanding Paul's confidence that God will fulfill his promise to meet all our needs, not with stingy, meager, uh, a stingy, stingy meager pittance, but with the lavish, abundant provision befitting the limitless wealth of God. Wow! Oh, the riches of God. According to his riches, he will supply our needs. Secondly, the phrase in glory, right? In glory, that emphasizes the transcendence of God's riches and the final experience of them. So God's riches are not found, by the way, in business deals, in stocks and bonds, in retirement accounts, in real estate, in gold or silver. God's riches are in glory, Get that? God's riches are in glory. They transcend and surpass all earthly wealth. So it makes sense, it should make sense to us, that they could only finally and fully be realized in glory on the day when Christ will transform our lowly bodies, in, uh, you know, these humble bodies, into bodies like his own glorious body. The earthly riches may satisfy us for this temporary life, <laughs> but the real riches await us in glory. And then third, the phrase in Christ Jesus explains the location where the riches of God are found. So those who are in Christ Jesus through faith and live in union with him every day are the ones who will experience God's faithful provision of his riches and glory, both in this life and in the life to come. That's language that's pretty awesome. And so, as Paul talks about the promise of God supplying out of his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, it leads Paul to a final doxology, really, ascribing glory to God the Father forever and ever, verse 20. We're pulling up to the jetway right now. The door's about ready to open, and we're going to walk out of here. But just think of this. Just as in the Christ hymn of chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which ends with honor given to Christ, who is given a name that is above every name, that every knee will you know, bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, they're all going to bow and give glory to God the Father because of who Christ is, right? He's been given that name. But that, that 
doxology there, if you will, that Christ hymn ended with glory to God the Father because of who Christ is. And this one does as well. Those who experience the glory of glorious riches of God in Christ Jesus in glory can't help but declare the glory due to God the Father for giving us his Son, in whom are found all those riches. Again, a quote. The doxology closes with Amen. 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 A strong affirmation of what has been stated, right? So I don't know if you knew this or not. It seems like churches, our church in particular, doesn't really understand this well, that the responsive pronouncement of amen by a congregation of believers to a doxology, or maybe it's to a point in a sermon or a verse read or a song sung or anything like that, you know, that was a, a way of the church from its beginning to state their agreement with on how good God is. Amen. Amen gives the church the opportunity to endorse the oxology. Glory to God. Glory to God. Amen. Amen. That's right. Yes. So shall it be. That's what amen. An affirmation of what has been said. So in their amen, believers in Christ joyfully assert that because of their faith in Christ, that God will fulfill all of his promises in Christ, and their amen, by their amen, they affirm that they give all glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord, we're thankful for this wonderful short letter. It's taken us a while to get through it, but it has been a wonderful study of your words to us. Yes, they were written by Paul to a church long ago, and in a sense that sometimes causes feel like we're disconnected from it. But these are your words to your church throughout the ages, and so they are your words to us. And we're thankful for them, all the lessons that we've learned about Christ, about you, about ourselves, about what you want from us, how you want us to live, the advancement of the gospel, the joy and the peace and contentment that you give us, the calls for us to, to, to live life together and stand firm against the attacks of the enemy. These are all lessons for us today, certainly. But they only make sense for those who are in Christ, the Savior. And one that we were singing about earlier in Christmas songs, one who came, and he came to become the Savior of sinners And I pray that if there's someone in this room today that has not placed their faith in him, that they would do so. They would recognize that he is the only mediator between holy God and sinful men. They would put their trust in him and his sacrifice for them, and they would be welcomed into your family. Help us who are in your family to give you glory. And thanks for the food we're getting. That's another faithful provision. For us. All praise be to you, Lord. Amen.